Well, thank you once again for joining us. Welcome to Grace. We're studying the book of Romans. Uh, we've called it Paul's Handbook on Faith for very good reason. Uh, Paul tells us what we're to believe, why we need to believe it, uh, and how our righteous standing with God comes about. So as we prepare now to jump into Romans chapter 4, verse 1, that, that's really where we've come to. I want to spend a little more time on the two sentences that conclude chapter 3. I think there's some important things here. And we, we don't want to shortchange this, this last section of chapter 3. So we'll include the first three verses of chapter 4 with the final two verses of chapter 3. We might even read a little bit more in 4. I'll read through our text to get us underway, and uh, you can join me as we look through here. Beginning with, chapter, with Romans chapter 3, verse 30. Paul writes, Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the un- uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, or may it never be. Yea, we establish the law. We'll be seeing how in just a few minutes. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it, his belief, was counted unto him, For righteousness. Final two verses. Now to him that worketh. And the idea here, the context is for his righteous standing before God. To him that worketh for his righteousness is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. What a statement. That person's faith is counted for righteousness. Now, The verse that introduced our text today is one that's perplexed Bible scholars for centuries, so you should understand that. Why would Paul use the expression, by faith, when speaking of the justification of the Jews who had been under that law contract? And then he changes to the expression, through faith, when speaking of the justification of those who had never been placed under the law contract for righteousness in the first place. Uh, Notice verse 30, once again, seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision, here's his expression, by faith, and uncircumcision through faith. Now the translators use two different words because two different words are present in the Greek manuscripts. Uh, In the case of the first expression, by faith, uh, as it pertains to the justification of those under law, it's the preposition ek, which we find in the Greek manuscripts in the Greek is a primary preposition meaning out of as a source. Uh, The Greek dictionary states that this of the word ek, out of, the point from which action or motion proceeds. Ek denotes the channel of an act. The word through in Paul's second expression as he speaks to the justification of the uncircumcision, the Gentiles who had never been under the law contract, is the Greek preposition dia. Uh, which while also having to do with the channel of something, can be translated because of or by reason of. Uh, Those are in the dictionary. We might even say on account of or for the sake of or by way of. Uh, The commentators usually say it makes no difference when when they hash over why the two different expressions. They say, well, they're basically saying the same thing, so read it any way you like. It really makes no difference. But... You know, for someone like me, it's hard to get across that, that notion across when I see that the Holy Spirit chose to use two different words. He didn't choose to use the same word. This tells me that there are two different thoughts in view. No matter how closely those thoughts may be related, 
They are, in fact, two different thoughts. I think the difference lies in the truth Paul presented in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul's gospel, the gospel of Christ. For it, that gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, note how Paul points to faith from two different perspectives in verse 17, the very next verse after he mentions his gospel. For therein, in the gospel of Christ, the gospel Paul was given to proclaim, is the righteousness of God revealed, in other words, God's righteousness, the righteousness that belongs to God in providing this justification. It is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now in verse 17, the believer's faith is in view, as well as Christ's faith. And I think we, we looked at that briefly uh, last study. As Paul said in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of or belonging to, not the believer, but the faith of Jesus Christ, his faith. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. <clears throat> we are justified through the faith that belongs to the person, the God-man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was Christ's faith in the Father's will that took Christ to Calvary. So Christ's faith is directly tied to God being just and being able to justify those who believe the gospel of Christ today. But when it came to the justification of those uh, under the law contract, and certainly that would include those who believed God, yet knew nothing at all about Christ's death, burial, uh, or resurrection, God could justify those folks based simply on the fact that they were taking God at his word to them and nothing more. So the circumcision, those under the law contract in time past, shall have a righteous standing before God based on the fact that they took God at his word to them. Simple as that. They shall be justified by faith, by their faith and what had God had told them and nothing else. Uh, you remember Paul used the word forbearance in our previous study. So God, God put up with, in a manner of speaking, he allowed some things to take place, knowing what was coming down the road that these folks knew nothing of. Those today who God has never dealt with according to a law contract are justified through the faith belonging to Jesus Christ, who the gospel of Christ tells us resolved our sin issue at Calvary. The circumcision by faith, the uncircumcision through faith. Hopefully you see the difference. Um, but this leads us directly to the issue of what man had to believe prior to the revealing by the Apostle Paul of what Paul calls the gospel of Christ. Uh, here's some questions we'll try to answer today, and uh, if we fin don't finish today, at least the next couple messages we'll be presenting. Was Paul preaching two different gospels, two dis different gospel messages at the outset of his ministry? How many would say yes and how many would say no? Everybody's afraid. It's not a trick question. <laughs> I'll just give you the answer. The answer is yes. He was preaching two different gospel messages. Um, did he preach two different gospel messages throughout his ministry? I would say the answer is yes. Now we're going to have to show this as we go along. If so, did Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Gentiles, ever preach 
the gospel of the kingdom as taught by Jesus Christ and the twelve? The answer to that question is no, he did not. But let's take it a step further. (laughs) Did the twelve preach the same gospel Paul preached? Or did the twelve stick with the gospel that they had begun to preach? Now this is going to get interesting for some of you folks, I think. Did a good news message given by God to Paul affect those who had believed a previous good news message? I see some heads nodding and you're absolutely correct. This is where it becomes very interesting in my opinion. Are you thoroughly confused, some of you, (laughs) at this point in time? Well, we'll try to straighten out some of that confusion by looking at some of the different gospel messages presented in the Bible. And keep in mind, for those folks who, say, insist, there is only one gospel in all of Scripture, uh, I think Scripture would prove that to be a faulty assumption. There are many sets of good news given throughout Scripture, and we're going to examine some of them today. And then we'll look at the gospel messages presented during the time of Christ and during the time of Paul. What did men know and when did they know it? That seems to be the question uh, in a political sense that's been uh, raised uh, in our day. What did men know back in Christ's day and in Paul's day and when did they know it? And what did they have to believe at that time in order to have God declare them to be righteous? Keep in mind, faith is and has always been nothing more than taking God at his word. And God has always declared to be righteous those who would simply take him at his word. It's as simple as that. Um, But understand, when we talk about taking God at his word, we're talking about believing the good news messages God has given man to believe down through the course of time. Uh, When you come across the word gospel in scripture, understand that you're looking at the Greek word pronounced euangelion, euangelion, which simply means good news. Uh, glad tidings is another expression used in the dictionary of the Greek for the word euangelion. So understand the term gospel simply means good news until the context of the scripture identifies the good news being declared and the good news to be believed by men. Now if we want to go back to time past to see what good news messages God gave men to believe and by which God could declare them to be righteous if they believed it, we have only go back to go back to the book of Hebrews uh, to know that God's good news messages were not always the same message. Men were given different good news messages as God's word was progressively revealed. Hebrews contains what many have called the faith chapter. Some of you are familiar with the faith chapter in Hebrews as it reveals God's good news messages for those who believed God in time past. So let's take a quick look. The faith chapters, chapter Hebrews chapter 11, we'll begin with verse 1. Here, the author of Hebrews, and some say it's Paul, some say it's not Paul. Uh, I don't believe it was Paul, but we'd never die on that hill or argue, fight with anybody over the issue. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by faith that is, the elders of Israel who had faith, the elders to whom this letter is addressed, obtained a good report. Now, this is going back beyond the elders of Israel to the elders of the human race. Uh, we'll see that as we progress here. Verse 3, Paul, or Paul, listen to me, the author of Hebrews continues, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. 
Now, faith in time past was believing that God was the creator of all things. The worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do do appear. God spoke the world into existence. So God was the one who was to be believed, to be believed in. Now jump with me to verse chapter 4. He's going to begin with the first person of the human race, Adam. By faith, Adam offered unto God, or Abel here rather, going beyond Adam to Abel. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. What type of a sacrifice? We're going to see in a few minutes. He offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he, Abel, was righteous. God testifying of his, here's the type of sacrifice, gifts. This was a love sacrifice, a gift offering according to God. And by it, by Abel's offering, he being dead yet speaketh. He gave, remember the story there? He proved that he believed that it was God Almighty who was the source of all things. And Abel proved his belief in God by taking a more excellent love offering to God. Uh, You recall that Abel brought from the firstlings of the flock and the verse went on to say from the fatness thereof. Uh, So you only have to look back at the fact that Abel brought his very best to the God who created all things to know that Abel believed what he'd been told by and about God. Uh, Remember, God was speaking directly to men. We might even say audibly back in the days of Abel. If the 12 apostles knew nothing at all about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection until Christ revealed it to them, then can we be reasonably sure, reasonably certain, that Abel also knew nothing at all about Jesus Christ or of his death, burial, and resurrection? I think we can. Abel didn't have to. Neither did Adam. He had only to respond to that truth which he had been told at the time, either by Adam or, as we said, by God himself. For lack of a designation given in Scripture, we might simply call this the gospel or the good news of a God creator along with the good news of a coming seed conqueror. Remember what God told Satan in earshot of Adam and Eve? The seed of the woman would come and he would bruise the head of that uh, defiler of Satan. So there would be coming a seed conqueror. We might even say a seed rescuer for mankind. Adam had believed both of those gospel messages. And we know that Abel knew as much as Adam and Abel responded positively positively to that which he'd been told. Of course, again, Abel, Adam, knew nothing about a man that would be named Jesus Christ who would come on the scene much later down the road. Much less did they know that this man, the man Jesus Christ, would die, be buried, and rise again. Uh, the one, the seed to come. They just knew it was a seed to come. Moving ahead to verse 5 of Hebrews 11, we read about the man named Enoch. Uh, The Bible tells us that Enoch was the son of Cain. How many knew that? Uh, In this case, we could say, like his father was not Cain's son. Uh, Just the opposite of like father, like son. This this son was totally different from the father. Verse uh, 5 tells us, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, there's a verse in your Bible that says, without faith, it is impossible to do what? 
please God. So evidently Enoch had faith. Faith in what? Well, he believed the same message that Adam had believed, that Abel had believed, a God creator of all things. Design demands a designer, and God was the creator of all things. Not only that, there would be a seed of the woman come forth down the road who would conquer Satan's head, uh, bruise Satan's head. So Enoch evidently believed the same good news message Adam and Abel had believed, the good news of a coming seed, redeemer, conquer. Remember the word redeemer in Hebrew simply means deliverer, rescuer. Enoch believed that through the seed of Eve, knowing nothing at all of the identity of that seed, would come the one who would defeat the defiant one, meaning Satan and those who would follow after that defiant one. Remember God had said that Eve's seed would bruise Satan's head, and but Satan's seed would bruise the heel of Eve's seed. Now some have jumped over the bridge with uh, the expression Satan's seed. <laughs> But your seed shall bruise his heel. Don't go off onto a project and come up with the idea that Satan was actually the progenitor of all who refused to take God at his word. I've heard several people take that stand. Satan is the father of those unbelief. He's the father of all liars, we hear. But he's their father only in respect that those in unbelief belong to his dominion. They belong to him in a spiritual sense. They're related to him, spiritually speaking. But he didn't actually, Satan didn't actually give birth to a whole side human race and those people couldn't believe if they wanted to believe because they were really Satan's seed. They are a, these folks are spiritually identified with Satan and that Satan is the one with whom they've chosen to, to be identified. How did they make that choice? By not taking God at his word about God being the creator of all things and the seed coming from God. But back to Enoch here for a moment. How do we know that Enoch believed in a coming seed conqueror? Well, we learn that from the book of Jude. Jude, speaking of ungodly men who defile the flesh, remember the angels that left not their first estate? Uh, Jude begins to, to point toward men who defile the flesh and despise dominion. What does it mean for men to despise dominion? Well, they despise being under anyone's authority. Any of that going around today? Men who despise being under the authority of everyone, they're their own person. They are their own authority. Uh, that, that truth began back, uh, we know, back in the garden with, um, with Cain, did it not? The way of Cain was to become his own authority. Um, so they despise being under anyone's authority, much less God's authority, and so we read this about Enoch in the book of Jude. You find it in Jude 14. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, these men who despise being under authority, uh, saying, Behold the Lord, here it's the word kurios, the one who is supreme in authority, cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Now people jump to the conclusion right here, oh, he's coming back with the saints, and that would include who? Oh, that would include all the saints of all the ages. We're coming back to this earth. Christ is coming back with us. But that's not the, the point of this passage, folks. He's coming back with ten thousands of his saints. And that word is kurios. The one who is supreme in authority is coming back with those holy ones. Those holy ones being a reference in other areas of scripture to the angelic host, to the non-rebellious angelic host. He's coming back with them. For what purpose? to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed 
and all of their hard speeches which they ungod- which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, this is a reference to the upcoming tribulation period, folks, and the coming of the seed conquer that men had to believe in uh, way back. Uh, and this was the this was the issue from Enoch's point of view. By the way, the word saints, as we said, hagia, simply means holy ones. Understand that a reference to the undefiled angelic host. In this pastor's opinion, this is Christ coming in judgment upon mankind. From Enoch's perspective, again, it was the coming of that seed conqueror, that seed rescuer that Adam had been told about and that Abel had believed in. Then moving on to Hebrews 11.7, we read about another man and his faith in Scripture. Let's look at that man. By faith, by simply taking God at his word, Noah, being warned of God of things not as yet, not seen as yet, namely the waters that would be coming from the heavens and up from the earth that would flood the earth, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now, if you had faith in that time, if the world had had faith in that time, what would they have been doing? Pressing the door of that ark, wanting into that ark. But they didn't want into that ark. They didn't believe they were scoffing at Noah. I did not believe Noah's message for the years that Noah preached it. And so, uh, so Noah really was condemning them by putting his faith alongside the faith of the world. A righteous God recognizes... Um, uh, people to be to be righteous, to be those he could declare to be righteous uh, by way of doing what? Stay with me here. It's a declaration of righteousness that comes by way of taking God at his word. Simple as that. Um, it's just what God revealed to the folks of time past. His word to them, um, such as here with Noah, was not nearly as complete as what God has revealed for people to believe today. There's been progressive revelation, so the message has changed down through time. It's that change in message that we're interested in discovering as we study here in this book of Romans. God said, build an ark, Noah. It's going to begin to rain outside. Forget your umbrella. Build an ark. Uh, You'll be safe inside the ark. You see, he built it, as verse 7 states, to the saving of his house. So he knew something about that ark. He knew that God would preserve him and his household through that ark. Did Noah know at that time what that wooden ark would ultimately represent? Uh, You'll not find anything of that in Scripture. All we're told that Noah knew was the truth of an upcoming judgment, a judgmental flood on the God-rejectors of his day, upon all who refused to take God at his word, and God's preservation of those who would indeed take him at his word. That's all he knew. This brings us to chapter 11, verse 8, where we read about the Hebrew patriarch Abraham. Now, can you see with me, as you look at the overhead screen, how the flavor of the gospel message changed as time went on, and that the message itself was enhanced or altered, changed, added to, we might even say? Uh, The Apostle Paul is going to use Abraham's faith when we return to Romans chapter 4. That's why we're coming to it here in Hebrews. Let's first look at it here in Hebrews um, because this book was written to and about the, is the nation Israel. More of said of Abraham here in chapter 11 of Hebrews than of any of the others who had taken God at his word before him. Look with me at verse 8. Hebrews 11 verse 8. 
Isn't it interesting how all these verses begin with by faith? By faith. Let's, let's phrase it the way it makes meaning to us. By simply taking God at his word. Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, whether he went. Verse 9, by faith, by simply taking God at his word again, Abraham sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he, Abraham, looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, notice the good news message, the good news messages we have thus far. Do you see how things are being added to as we go along? According to the book of Hebrews, Abraham was justified by faith. He continually took God at his word. Now, right here, let's return to our text in Romans because we're talking about Abraham. Don't lose sight of the summation statement Paul made in Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by, what's the word? Faith without or with no credence whatsoever given for obedience to the deeds of the law. If you think your pride nature rebels against that idea, you can imagine the mindset of the religious Jews of Paul's day who were boasting, Paul said in Romans chapter 2, in their ability to keep the law for righteousness. You see, Paul anticipated just such a response here in Romans. Paul knew that men everywhere would object to the idea that a man could, be, uh, could accomplish his own justification, or I should say a man could not accomplish his own justification apart from God. Paul knew that the pride nature... The human pride nature would kick against any notion that God would gift a person with something as wonderful as perfect righteousness when it becomes obvious in all men's eyes that know that person that that one so gifted's behavior is undeserving of that gift. Our pride nature fights against that. Yet Paul's telling us point blank, just as he was telling us the salvation-earning Jews here are telling them, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without, totally apart from adherence uh, to law-keeping. Their law-keeping wouldn't cut it, Paul's saying. Adherence to the law, any law, for that matter, any form of law, was never God's intention when it came to his manner of providing man's justification. It's protest time, and Paul knew that. You're teaching contrary to the law of Moses, Paul. You see why they were accusing him of that very thing? No, he was not. Notice verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, or may it never be. Yea, we establish the law. Now, we've got to understand something here. To establish something, according to the dictionary, the word used here for establish, is to place something securely permanently in a position, situation, or condition that it might fulfill its purpose. Well, what was the law's purpose? You see, Paul was securing, Paul was establishing, Paul was uh, putting into permanent position the law so that the law could serve its purpose. And what was the law's purpose? It was never given for the purpose of making anyone good. It was never given for the purpose of establishing a, a righteous standing before God through the doing of it. It was given to man to show him how far he would come short of perfect righteousness. That purpose stands forever, folks. Um, Paul establishes that purpose here in Romans, um, in, in the book of Romans, and also in Galatians. By the work of the law shall no flesh be justified or righteousified. 
Paul states it in Galatians 2.16. He states it again in Romans 3.20. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, Paul writes in Galatians 3.24, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. By faithful law-keeping, as many would teach today, not a chance. By faith and a righteous standing before God that comes totally apart from law-keeping. So, what shall we say then? We come to Romans chapter 4, verse 1. And Paul writes here, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Now, I want you to notice what we can do here. And I'll show you how this verse is misread. Take the comma that's sitting there after the word father out and read it without that comma and see if it means the same thing. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? That would emphasize their relationship to Abraham, would it not, by heritage? What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? He wasn't their father as pertaining to the flesh in the point that Paul's making here. Yes, he was their father pertaining to the flesh, their father by heritage. But that's not the point Paul's making here, which is why there's a comma sitting after the word father. The translators knew well what the context of the passage was. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Do you see it there? We might say it this way. What then shall we say Abraham our father hath found pertaining to the flesh? That's the the idea here. That's Paul's point. Fits the context perfectly. The translators knew what they were doing, folks. The comma's right where it was supposed to be. Did Abraham gain righteousness in the eyes of Almighty God from the works that Abraham was able to accomplish by his flesh? I think we all know the answer to that. The answer is no. Romans 4.2 for if Abraham were justified, declared to be righteous by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Paul introduces a hypothetical situation here. Notice that word if. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. Abraham could glory all right, but in whose eyes? He could boast in the eyes of other men, maybe. He could boast to himself, but be careful not to leave out the remainder of the verse. He hath whereof to glory, you finish it, but not before God. You see, Abraham had a very important lesson to learn. I would say it's a lesson most of Christendom so-called today has yet to learn. Paul asked the question, what shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, did find? If you know the story, I'm sure that many of you uh, are aware uh, of the fact that Abraham learned that God would not be satisfied with what Abraham could produce, uh, what he could produce for God his fingerprints would not be found on God's promise. We could say it that way. God had promised Abraham a seed, had he not? A seed so numerous that God likened it to the stars of heaven, to the sand and the seashore in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed that promise. He took God at his word. God's going to produce this, my seed, to the point that there be innumerable. And that was counted to Abraham for righteousness. Not too difficult to believe, wouldn't you say? But... You see, Sarai was barren when that promise was made. Abraham was around, what, 87 or so years old. Uh, You know the story of Hagar, uh, Sarai's handmaiden, and Sarai's attempt to help God fulfill that promise that he had made to Abraham. Uh, So what did Abraham learn as pertaining to the flesh? Uh, God didn't need his help. 
God wouldn't allow Abraham's fingerprints to be found on God's promise to Abraham. Abraham followed the wishes of Sarai, nonetheless, we see, just as Adam followed Eve. Most of you know what uh, a radio commentator of time past would say the rest of the story. Ishmael, Ishmael was born to Abraham through, through Hagar. And the battles that have taken place and continue to take place even our, in our day over that land, folks, can be traced right back to the conflict that arose between Isaac and Ishmael and who owns that land. What did Abraham learn as pertaining to the flesh? You cannot help God fulfill a promise that God has already made he would fulfill. Uh, this is why Paul continues in Romans 4.4 4 by saying, Now to him that worketh for a righteous standing before God is the context, is the reward of righteousness not reckoned by grace, but of debt. If you work for your right standing before God through any form of rule keeping, promise to do, commitment to do, commitment to, to abstain from doing, and you think your righteousness before God will be based on that, the delete key is going to be hit. Uh, God's going to hit the delete key and all that will disappear. Notice the next verse. But to him that worketh not for his righteous standing before God. You're not attempting through anything that you do, promise to do, or commit not to do for your righteous standing before God. You're believing on the one that justifieth or declares to be righteous. Who? The ungodly. That person's faith is counted for righteousness. That's pretty obvious here, folks. Are we to perform good works? Why, of course we are. God obviously wants us to do good works, as we're told in Galatians 6.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Titus 3.8. We're created unto good works, Paul tells us in, in, in Ephesians 2.10. But Paul never wants us to attribute, to any degree whatsoever, our salvation to the good works we do. Uh, forget that idea. It's not, uh, it's not to him who believes that he must add a few required good deeds here or there to... Uh, to make God make sure God's uh, happy with him and foolproof his ticket to heaven. Scripture plainly says, to him that worketh not for his righteous standing before God, being the context. That means adding no works whatsoever to your acquisition of or the preservation of your salvation. It's simply taking God at his word concerning what his son accomplished for you at Calvary where your sins are concerned. That's the issue and that's the gospel message to believe be believed today. It's called the gospel of Christ. Now, let's return to that study of the gospels of scripture. We found that God's always justified men or declared men to be righteous based upon their taking God at his word to them and nothing else. We also found that God's good news, his good news message has been enhanced down through the course of time. We call that progressive revelation. Adam, Abel, Enoch knew nothing about what God would tell Noah to believe in regard to a coming flood and a safe place, the safe place of the ark. Adam and Abel and Enoch believed in a coming seed of the woman, Eve, who would conquer Satan and Satan's adherents. They believed God. It was counted to them for righteousness. They believed the gospel of a coming seed conqueror. Just as Noah believed God concerning the flood and the ark, and likewise his belief was counted unto him for righteousness. A deliverer, God would be his deliverer. All of these men believe the good news of a coming seed conqueror, by the way. Or we might even say redeemer, because again, that word in Hebrew is translated to rescuer or deliverer. Then God promised Abraham a numerous seed and a land. Wow, a lot here. Abraham's promised a lot of things. 
It was that same land which Adam had been given dominion. The land called Eden in scripture. God counted Abraham righteous because Abraham believed God. Where did he go? He went to that land just as God had instructed. Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob uh, had 12 sons. Jacob, um, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So we come up with the 12 sons of Jacob or the 12 sons of Israel known in scripture as the 12 tribes of Israel. And thus began God's plan and the fulfillment of that plan or the establishment of that plan and the carrying on of that plan with a nation. Israel was promised an earthly king in scripture. So now she's got some good news given her or uh, we could say a Messiah and an earthly kingdom where her promised king uh, would rule and reign. This is where we come to the good news message that Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah knew nothing whatsoever about. Let's pick it up with Hebrews chapter 11 and the promise of that land to the man named Abraham. We'll put verses 8 and 9 back up on the screens to refresh your minds as to, to Abraham's faith. Notice here in verse 8, by faith Abraham when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith, verse 9, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now notice verse 11, for he, Abraham, looked for a city, which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Israel's kingdom was to be an earthly kingdom, folks, And by the time John the Baptist came along, it was time for that proclamation to be made to Israel that her earthly kingdom was right there at her doorstep. You see the gospel to be believed? Why that gospel at that time was called the gospel of the kingdom, of course. Now understand, when you see the expression, the kingdom of God in scripture, and you'll run across that expression numerous times, know that the kingdom of God is the overall rulership of God, whether it be in heaven and or on earth. Uh, a good passage that speaks to the overall rulership of God, otherwise called the kingdom of God on earth, sits in 1 Corinthians 29, but it's going to speak of the heavenly realm also. Look at 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, where we read, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven, one realm, all that in the earth, a different realm, is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. Do you see the overall kingdom of God? And thou art exalted as head above all. So the kingdom of God is a reference to the overall rulership of God, whether it be in heaven or on earth. The context tells us which one is being spoken of. So there sits the kingdom of God concept as clearly as any passage to be found in scripture, in my opinion. Now let's take God's rulership on earth first. Because this is what Christ's earthly ministry to Israel was all about. Remember, it was Abraham's descendants that would come to be known as Israel. And it was those folks who were looking for a city. This promise was made to those folks of an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. So we're starting out in this session with what the Bible refers to as the gospel of the kingdom. You see, the good news message changed. Now it's the good news of the kingdom. But first a bit of prophecy concerning the king to reign in this kingdom being spoken of here. It sits in Isaiah 9.6. Israel's prophet Isaiah is speaking here and he says, For unto us, Israel, a child is born. Unto us, Israel, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now you've got a ruler on earth and an earthly city, earthly kingdom. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. 
the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the names of God given right here. This was a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, folks. Of course, when Christ was born, the first part of this prophecy was fulfilled. Now let's look at the earthly ministry of the one who would be fulfilling it. Matthew 4.23 Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. The miracles being performed were God's validation of Christ and his message. Another passage referring to the gospel of the kingdom sits in Matthew 9.35 Jesus went out about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching, here it is, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Remember the word gospel means good news. So Jesus was proclaiming good news about Israel's promised earthly kingdom. In fact, he would have 12 disciples uh, to be called 12 apostles who would be proclaiming this good news message right along with him. Now let's pick it up with Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. And we'll see what they knew and when they knew it. Matthew chapter 10 verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. Don't go to the Gentiles. I want you to go to the Jews. But rather go, verses 6 and 7, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach saying, the same thing that I've been preaching is what he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the good news of the kingdom of God, as far as the earth is concerned, was the fact that the kingdom of God on earth was right at their doorstep. It was sitting on Israel's doorstep. Notice a couple of other passages along those same lines, such as Mark 1.4. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom of God, verse 15. Mark 1.15 and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Now, here's the good news being preached, that the earthly kingdom is right at their doorstep. Repent and believe the gospel. What would you say that meant for them to do? Promise God they wouldn't sin anymore, and ask Him if He'd forgive them for their sins, and believe that through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, those sins would be forgiven? The message of good news was good news being sent specifically to Israel. Their king, their, their, their promised earthly kingdom and their king was within their grasp and that would necessitate the presence of a king, wouldn't it? A king would have to be present in order for that kingdom to be established and they've been preaching, it's at hand. Now the good thing was that the twelve understood the gospel they'd been preaching. They believed the kingdom, their earthly kingdom was right at their doorstep. They knew about the promised earthly kingdom. From the prophets, and just as Christ was preaching it, they were also preaching the same thing Christ was preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The call was for the nation Israel to change their thinking, to change their minds about their success under the law contract in order to become that holy nation, that kingdom of priests God had prophesied they'd become. Notice what had not been a part of the gospel of the kingdom message up to that point in time. Then charged his his disciples that they should tell how many? No man. What had they been preaching? The gospel of the kingdom. But here he's telling them, tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. In other words, that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised king 
for that kingdom that was in their grasp. But understand, for two years they had been teaching the gospel of the kingdom and told to repent prior to knowing anything about Jesus Christ being their king. Let's stay with that passage for a moment. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. That sounds like the gospel we're to believe, isn't it? What was accomplished through that gospel? Then Peter took him, the man who had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom for two years with Christ. Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. So was Peter preaching the same thing that Paul was preaching when Paul preached the gospel of Christ? No, he wasn't. Peter knew nothing of it. They had been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but the gospel of the kingdom was not the fact that you had to believe in the accomplishments of the cross work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection where your sins are concerned, to be saved. They knew nothing about the death, burial, and resurrection of their king. We know that uh, we know that they didn't. We can look at John 20, verse 9. Did I go backwards? There it is. We can look at John 20, verse 9. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the gospel of the kingdom, folks, did not include, while they had been preaching it on earth, the good news that the king would die, be buried, but rise again from the dead to sit on the throne of David. They... They had understood the kingdom to be at hand. That's the gospel of the kingdom. But they still didn't understand the truth about the death, burial, and especially the resurrection of the king. Christ goes to Jerusalem, and there he faces Pilate. Notice the discourse of Christ and Pilate in Luke chapter 23, verse 3. Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? What was Peter, who had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom, told to not say anything about? Don't tell any man that I'm the king. (laughs) Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest. What was the nation saying at that point? Well, look at this. John 19, verse 5. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the king. Behold the man. Isn't that interesting? Now notice the very next verse, or the very next uh, passage coming up, 1915. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Obviously, Israel, for the most part, nationally, which would include her so called spiritual leadership, did not believe the gospel of the kingdom. Even if they had believed the good news that the kingdom was at hand, they rejected the king of that kingdom. They rejected Jesus Christ. Uh, This was the point of Israel's stumbling. They rejected the king as being the king. Now, let's quickly look at the events surrounding his resurrection. We find them in Luke chapter 23. To save a little time, I'm going to jump to verse 35. Christ is on the cross here, folks. Notice the words of the people. In Luke 23, 35, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. What were they assuming he could not do? Come down off that cross. They were rejecting his kingship. 
The word Christ is the word Christos, meaning the anointed one, meaning the Messiah, uh, Mashiach, the consecrated king of the nation Israel. The interesting thing is that the twelve who had been proclaiming the kingdom of heaven to be at hand for over two years, along with Jesus Christ, even believing that Christ indeed was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, had as yet to believe that the king who had been crucified would actually rise again from the dead. They accepted him as the king. They accepted him as the son of God. They accepted that their earthly kingdom was within their grasp. But when he died, what were they unable to accept? That he would rise again from the dead. Oops, another good news message needs to be added, does it not? So you see, the gospel of the kingdom was not the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, much less about the accomplishments of the crosswork of Christ at Calvary. The gospel of the kingdom was the truth that the nearness of the of the nearness of the promised earthly kingdom should Israel change their minds, repent, about their promise to become righteous through their law keeping. Mary Magdalene now and the other women went along with Mary, go to the tomb early in the morning to find Christ. Where is he? He's gone. This is where they encounter the two angels who told them he's not here, but he's risen. Notice verse uh, 24, verse 6 in Luke 24. He's not here, the angelic host says, but he's risen. But he's risen. Remember how he spake with you when he was yet in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered that he had said that. But notice the reaction of the apostles who had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom for some time. Notice their reaction to the good news of Christ's resurrection as it's delivered to them by these ladies who went to the tomb. Luke 24, verses 8 and 9. And they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher. And these ladies told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. We're about to get their reaction. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles. The reaction of the apostles... Can you sort of imagine it? Why, of course he's risen. He said he would rise again from the dead, did he not? We heard him say it. Certainly he's risen. We shouldn't be surprised to find that he's gone. Those words are not to be found in Scripture, folks. <laughs> Instead, notice the reaction of those to whom had been preaching, to those who had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom, to the fact of Christ's resurrection from the dead in, the, in Luke 24:11. And their words, whose words? The testimony of these ladies who had visited the tomb and found Christ gone, seemed to these apostles as what? Idle tales, meaning a totally unbelievable story. And here it is, they believed them not. Isn't that interesting? They had believed the gospel of the kingdom, the nearness of the kingdom, at least as it had been explained up to this point. But here Christ had died. They'd even believed he was the Messiah. But here he had died, been buried, risen from the dead. And Peter, the leader of those apostles, had to visit the tomb himself before he would believe that Christ had risen from the dead. This brings us to what scripture refers to as the gospel or the good news of or concerning God. The gospel of God. Um, what was that good news? The gospel of God. God hath raised him from the dead. You see it over and over and over after Peter comes to find out that God had raised Christ from the dead and made him both 
uh, the judge of the quick and the living, uh, the, the quick and the dead, uh, made him both Lord and Christ. <laughs> Christ is the risen Son of God, the gospel of God. Jesus Christ, the manifestation of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the God-man is alive. Do you see the gospel? Of, why it's called the gospel of God and not the gospel of the kingdom? Because it's something new here being added that even the twelve had not believed while they had indeed believed the good news of the promised earthly kingdom. This would be an important addition to the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Peter and the others began preaching it after, after the risen but not yet ascended Christ explained it to them in Luke chapter 24. Why would a resurrected Christ be such an important thing for the nation Israel to believe? Well, read Christ's explanation of it to the apostles of the earthly program. Then he said to them, O fools, to them who? To the twelve had it been preaching the good news of the earthly kingdom. Repent and be baptized. Then he said to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ, verse 26 in Luke 24, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures. Their scriptures, of course, the only scriptures they had at that time. The things concerning himself. Verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Next verse, verse 45, Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise the dead the third day. Again, why would a risen Messiah be such good news, such important news to the folks of the earthly kingdom program? Here it is. And that repentance, a change of mind, and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You see, if Israel could have their sins remitted nationally, then Israel could indeed become that holy nation and kingdom of priests. And if Israel could become that holy nation and kingdom of priests, then the Gentiles would be able to come to God through Israel's rise. That's why it would be important for Christ to rise. So Israel could have their sins remitted and they could arise and the Gentiles could come to God through the nation Israel. This is why John said in John 20, verse 31, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. It was only Israel having life that would make it possible for the Gentiles to have life through Israel's rise, through the nation Israel. They would come and take the hem of the, the skirt of the one that was a Jew, saying, We want to go with you because we hear that God is with you, and he certainly will be in time yet future. But you see, Israel nationally didn't accept the gospel of the kingdom. They didn't accept the gospel of God, that Christ was the Son of God, that he was risen, the risen Lord. Lord. They didn't accept that at all. So rather than rise, Israel fell. Time for a different set of good news. And this different set of good news is going to be the gospel of Christ. That's why you see that terminology in scripture. The gospel of Christ, different from the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of Christ, important for us to believe today. But where had Israel stumbled? They had stumbled 
over the fact that Christ was their Messiah, the Son of living God, and that he had risen from the dead. If that was necessary for the remission of their sins, what would be necessary for us to understand that we have the total forgiveness of our sins? That Christ was the Son of God, that he died, he was buried, he rose again, and that that's a good news message now to be believed in order to be saved. You see, the message is changing, but the gospel of God was truth for both programs. Paul never taught the gospel of the kingdom, the good news the kingdom was at hand, because it was no longer at hand with, with Saul's conversion. That kingdom was put on the shelf. Paul did preach the gospel of God because that was necessary to be believed in both programs. In order for Christ to, or Israel to become a holy nation, kingdom of priests, Christ had to rise again. In order for us to have our sins uh, abolished through that crosswork of Christ, it was necessary for Christ to die, be buried, and rise again. So the gospel of God was truth for both programs, and Paul did indeed proclaim it. He also proclaimed what he calls the gospel of Christ. What did Christ accomplish at Calvary through his death, burial, and resurrection? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. That's news. Would Paul's gospel affect the saints of the earthly kingdom program? Did Paul say he would add to them or that they would go with their message and he would go with his and never the twain would have anything to do with one another? Paul said, They added nothing to me when I went and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached to the Gentiles, but I added to them... How would Paul's message affect the saints of the earthly kingdom program? This is where it's going to get quite interesting. Uh, So if you want to know the answer to that, you'll have to stay tuned. (laughs) Stay with us and we'll try to answer it in some upcoming messages. How did Paul's gospel, the gospel of Christ, affect the saints of the earthly kingdom program? We'll, uh, We'll end it there today. And we'll thank God that he's saved us with a salvation that comes totally apart from anything that we could do, anything we could promise to do or commit to abstain from doing, that he saved us by doing away with that issue of sins that separated us from himself at Calvary when those sins were placed onto the person of Christ. All the sins of the entire world, according to 2 Corinthians 5, were placed onto the person of Christ at Calvary. He paid for those sins. The Father's justice was satisfied for those sins telling us that those sins are not the issue on the table of God's justice any longer. They cease to be an issue with Christ's death for those sins at Calvary. The issue is now, will man accept the gift that Christ has purchased for man at Calvary? What a wonderful message that is. Let's thank God for what he's told us in his scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you so much for, for planning and providing a salvation that would, that would not have our works attached to it and our efforts and our commitments and uh, our promises, they, they would mean nothing when it came to the gift that Christ would purchase for us. A gift decree of righteousness based solely on the fact that you would join those who would accept what he did for their sins, what he accomplished where their sins are concerned, to the person of the Savior himself. Therefore, what belongs to the Savior belongs to the believer. And that includes his righteousness. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for... Uh, explaining it to us through Paul here in the early going in Romans, the cornerstone we called the cornerstone of justification, uh, how it is that you can remain just and justify an ungodly believer. We thank you for the fact that uh, 
your justice was resolved and your love found a way to resolve it. We thank you so much for all things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.